0: You are listening to The Christian Commute, a commute-length podcast about Christian apologetics, theology, and other matters of Christian interest. Here is your host, Seth Dunn. It's Tuesday, July 11th. This is The Christian Commute. I am your host, Seth Dunn. And the reason that I'm whispering, like the ladies on NPR... Is because I think if I talk any louder, I'm going to cough up a lung and run out of breath. As you guys know, I am recovering from pneumonia. And there has not been a Christian commute. <coughs> there it goes. In, oh gosh, I feel like three weeks. Today is the first day that I have been back the office since I fell ill, oh, I want to say three Wednesdays ago, maybe two, and uh, I thought I'd give the commute a shot. My lungs are clear. I had an x-ray on last Wednesday, and it came back, you know, clear that they didn't see any more pneumonia in my lungs. But I'm still coughing. But I feel a lot better than I did. But I am obviously still not 100%. I think this is the longest I've ever gone without recording a Christian commute since I started. And uh, it's probably the sickest I've ever been since that's happened. And uh I'll tell you what, a respiratory illness will shut you down. Not not just in the sense of, you know, walking around, but, you know, I'm a podcaster, you gotta be able to talk. <coughs> and if I talk too much or too loudly or use too much breath, there it goes. So, um this is not going to be a typical Christian commute. I'm not sure if I can finish it, but I'm going to try. Uh, because you, you guys know, I, I get, I get excited. You know, uh, you can tell I mean what I say, but uh, I'm going to have to be very intentionally reserved. I hope it's tolerable uh, in the the low NPR voice. <clears throat> and I'm going to give myself more time. So here's what I'm doing. I'm going to Pizza Hut. I don't know if you guys know this about me. I, I you, actually, actually, you do know. I love Pizza Hut. Pizza Hut breadsticks are about my favorite thing to eat in the world. And when I was a kid, it was a big deal to go to Pizza Hut. Now you guys who are 40 years old remember this. They had, ar- they had arcade games. The one where I lived in Harrison had Bad Dudes and then Superman. So you go get a quarter from your dad, you play the arcade game, and you, and you get your breadsticks. Like it's a big deal for a kid to go to Pizza Hut. They used to do the little uh, book it reward and you get free pan pizzas. Anyway, that's like, a, that's like a time long gone. Those Pizza Huts are largely out of business. And you know the ones You when you drive by the building, you can tell it used to be a Pizza Hut. Well, every once in a while, I'll, I'll still see a freestanding pizza hut that's not a carryout place. And today, my body told me, Seth, it's time for a big pizza. But, and the nearest freestanding pizza hut is in Chatsworth. So that's where I'm going right now. I'm driving to Chatsworth for lunch. And then, uh, then I'm going to drive home from Chatsworth and finish my workday at home. It was nice to be back in the office, but... I'm going to Pizza Hut and uh, I'm going to finish the day working from home I got there and I'd been gone for a month and then it turned out no, nobody really needed me to be there <laughs> which is pretty much typical of any Tuesday that I'm in the office it's just my day to go uh, and you know the modern workforce a lot of people aren't there So that's what I'm doing, and uh, I'll probably finish the Bible chapter review, and then pause it, eat my lunch, and and then we'll do the rest of the Christian Commute going home from Chatsworth. And before I get started into the show proper, I want to thank the older demographic of the Christian Commute, because everyone that, that I know who listens, who's like 70 plus, that would be Rendell, Mary, and Martha... They all rode in to check on me, and you—that's know, what's what older people do. If, if you're sick, you're like, "Hey, okay, I'm praying for you. That's that's great." Other people checked on me too, but something about the older generation—I guess they know what it's like to, whew, be wearing out. And that's what pneumonia makes you feel like—like like you're worn out. <coughs> <coughs> so thank you guys. Uh, so uh, here it goes. I have a full episode for you today. I had a question in the inbox that's been in the inbox since I got sick. And it's been sitting there. And I even have one more. And that question is about the abandonment of a Christian spouse by a non-Christian spouse that's from 1 Corinthians. I mean, I mean the script the relevant scripture is from 1 Corinthians I and mean, the the incident happens all the time. And it's a two sticky note show. So we're coming back with a long one because the Bible chapter review is Matthew 23 verses 41 through 45 and it took up the whole sticky note. So if I have time to cover a show topic today, and if my lung capacity allows it, then we're going to talk about uh, --'re going to t- <coughs> We're going to talk about Christian nationalism, post-millennialism, because I see it feels like to me that's getting popular. And I may be a little late to the game to this discussion, uh, cause I wanted to talk about this a month ago, but it didn't happen. It's like Stephen Furtick left the SBC. I had a commentary on that, but uh, no Christian commute because of the because of the, the the illness. All right, Matthew Matthew 23 verses 41 through 45 when we last had a Christian commute a long long time ago we left off in Matthew 23 Uh, the teacher of the law or the lawyer expert in the law asked Jesus what what the greatest commandment was and he said love the Lord your God with all your heart mind and soul basically what the, the they would have called the Shema I guess they still call it that. Orthodox Jews still call it that. And uh, then he said the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Summarizing both tables of the law. The left, the left rock of the Ten Commandments and the right rock of the Ten Commandments. The one, that, the, ones that, the one that deals with you and God and the ones that deal with you and your neighbor. So that's what Jesus said. And now he's going to turn it around on the Pharisees, and he's going to ask them a question. I'm going to tell you what that is as soon as I get past this tractor trailer. Matthew chapter tre- <coughs> Matthew chapter 23, verses 41 through 45. Now when the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord? Saying, this is Psalm 110 that he's referring to, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word. And from then then on, no one dared ask him a question from that day on. Sorry, I paraphrased at the end because my, my handwriting was messy. No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone from that day on answer him a question or ask him a question. So the Pharisees, and the Sadducees for that matter, have been trying to trip Jesus up with trap questions. We've been going over that for, I was going to say for a few weeks, well we were, in the earlier chapters of Matthew. So now he's turned the tables on them. He's asked them a question that they don't know how to answer. And what's he say? Whose son is the Christ? So we know that Jesus is the Christ. That's why we call him Jesus Christ. They did not recognize that. But just because they did not believe that Jesus was the Christ does not mean that they didn't believe that there was a Christ coming. So everybody back then. In the Jewish society well, maybe not the Sadducees, but <coughs> the Pharisees what we might call the orthodox uh, believers of Second, Tem- Second Temple Judaism were looking forward to the Messiah the Christ. They expected this anointed one to come and the reason they did is because they read about him in the bible or the old testament which is all they had so they all they all believe a christ is coming everybody believes in this office this concept of the christ the problem then is they're not recognizing that the christ has come so jesus is he's asking a question about himself but he's doing it in the abstract like the christ Whose son is the Christ? And they answer him and they say, the son of David. Here's the deal. That answer is not wrong. It's actually the right answer. And we remember from earlier in this same scripture, uh, the blind man hollering out, Son of David, Son of David, have mercy on me. So all Jews are sons of Abraham, but they're not all sons of David. Okay, So he's not just saying, hey, fellow Jew, Son of David, Son of David is what he says. To refer to someone as the Son of David, it's, you're recognizing that he's the Messiah, that he's of the line of Judah. The Messiah is the Son of David, of the line of Judah. We know that. One messianic prophecy is, that God gives to David is <coughs> someone, will, someone for your line will always have the throne of Israel. And we know from the genealogies in Scripture uh, that David is, or that Jesus is of the line of David. That's why those genealogies are there to say, "Hey, this guy's from the line of David." So the Pharisees give the correct answer—an answer grounded in Scripture, an answer grounded in everybody's understanding of the Christ at the time. But Jesus doesn't say just you're just so oh, yeah you've, you've you've spoken correctly. Oop! I got to turn. I hope you guys can't hear the navigation lady in my ear, because uh, I'm driving on a route I've never been before. All right, I'm on this for 5.3 miles. You know, when you're sick and you want something to eat, you just eat it because it's like. That's what I'm doing. Sorry. Alright, going back to the Son of David. But Jesus answers them a follow-up question. And he goes to the Scripture. <coughs> and the Scripture cannot be denied. It's the authoritative source. He knows the Pharisees are not going to, to, to want to contradict the Scripture. And nor should they want to. And he doesn't want to. He believes it's the Scripture. and Nor, nor should we. Jesus goes to make a biblical reference And where did they get the idea that there was going to be a Christ? From the scripture. And there are what we call messianic psalms, which are psalms about the Christ. This is one. Psalm 101. Jesus refers to it. He says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. This is a messianic psalm. The Pharisees understand that it's a messianic psalm and David is writing this is the Psalm of David I understand that King David is writing this and David says the Lord who is he referring to there Yahweh said to my Lord who is he referring to there the Messiah the Christ because David is the king who could be his Lord but the Christ sit at my right hand okay so the Messiah goes to the right hand of God He's there in that equal position of authority. And Jesus asks this question. If David's his son, or if Christ is David's son, how in the world is he calling him Lord? The king doesn't call his own son Lord. He calls him prince, maybe. And then when the king dies, the prince becomes the king. But he, he doesn't have equal authority or I should say, greater authority than his dad, where you can call him Lord. He, the, the, he, the son, is not elevated to the right, that right-hand spot until the king dies. And, and maybe that's me talking too much about you know what the king of England or the king of Spain might do. The, the regency in the Old Testament Israel was different than European regency, so don't read too much of that into it. But we get it. You don't call your son Lord. I have a son. I'm not calling him Lord. Because that would imply that he's greater than me. He's not. He's my son. I'm his dad. (coughs) And now the Pharisees can't answer. And Here's the thing. The Pharisees know that the Christ is the son of David. They know that. They've answered correctly, like I said. But they can't explain how David is calling the Christ Lord here in this Messianic Psalm. Jesus has had an answer for every question that they've had for him. They can't answer the question, though. Now, we know, Jesus knew, and we know the answer looking back. like Jesus is like, I am the Christ. I'm the Son of God. And we know that he's, he's of the line of David by being... essentially adopted by Joseph but Mary's of the line of David too we know about the virgin birth and we know that that Jesus is God incarnate and that's how he's called Lord the Pharisees they don't get it and because they don't they can't answer him and from then on they didn't answer him a question nobody's asking any of these questions to try and trip him up they can't do it and now they're tripped up This is the end of Matthew chapter 23. Lord willing, on Thursday, I will be, once again, back in the office. And we'll start Matthew chapter 24, where Jesus is going to start condemning the Pharisees and their practices more. But for now, at this convenient breaking point, I'm going to eat lunch. I'm going to be to that pizza hut in four minutes. A rare treat. A standalone pizza hut. And, you know, often found in little off-the-beaten-path rural towns like Chetsworth. And when I return, I got through this okay. I'll get to the question in the inbox. It might require a long answer, but I'll have the time driving home. <coughs> and then Lord Willing I'll go home finish up my work day and I this Christian commute. All right, here's the pause button. Now oh, I got to find it. Pause, pause. I want to come back. We'll we'll finish. We'll do the rest of the story like uh, like Paul Harvey. Back. Full of breadsticks and pan pizza. My delicious favorites from Pizza Hut. I probably ate one piece too many. And uh, if the cough pauses weren't enough, now I have a Pepsi. I've been trying to lay off Coke, but (coughs) there's certain meals where I insist on having a Coke. Hamburger and fries, Mexican food, and pizza. So uh, this will be my Coke for the week. And for you Northerners wondering, like I thought he said he had Pepsi, everything's a Coke down here but Pizza Hut carries Pepsi. Alright. We're done with the Bible chapter review. (coughs) Let's go to sticky note number two. As I depart Chatsworth on Highway 411. Sticky note number two from the inbox. (sighs) Do you have a question? About Christian theology? And apologetics. If you do, you can write Seth Dunn88 at gmail.com. Seth Dunn88 at gmail.com Or you can dial 470-315-0875. And the question I'm going to answer today is can a Kia Soul make it from Chatsworth to Cartersville on a little over a quarter tank of gas? We're going to find out. But the question in the inbox is from Jeff and Slow Drive in Florida. And Jeff has a situation with a brother at his church where that brother's wife has left him. And she has taken up with another man. They're not yet divorced. I assume that the woman who left her husband and took up with another man is a non-Christian. I'm I'm guessing that. And I'm going to guess that she was a non-Christian when they got married. I don't know. So I don't know if she was a non-Christian to begin with or if she had professed faith and uh, now has abandoned her husband husband and engaged in adultery and has thus been declared a non-Christian by the church I'm just going to presume for the sake of this question that she's never made a profession and I'm going to point this out for you Christians out there which is everybody who listens but like two people we Christians are not to divorce one another. Period. That's it. You don't divorce another Christian. That's just how it goes. It's just how it goes. If your wife cheats on you, you have to forgive her. Now what happens if she doesn't ask for forgiveness? Well, then the church kicks her out and says, you're not a Christian, you're a false convert because you're cheating on your spouse and not repenting of it. Okay? But that I've done that show before. That's just a, a way of reminder. And I'm bringing that up to say I have never in my life heard of that happening. Ever. Now, I mean, I guess people getting kicked out of church is not something they broadcast, especially if they're cheating on their husbands or wives. But who here, I mean, I'm a lifelong church member, you know, who here has ever gone to a church conference and voted out an unbelieving spouse who's left his wife? Like, formally done it. I know that's probably happened in your churches. Like, an un, uh, somebody's who was a church member cheated on their spouse and then left them. <clears throat> Adultery's everywhere. Inside the church and out. The church visible. But, I'm, I'm just asking. Has anybody ever gone through that formal process? Because I guarantee you you know somebody who's been remarried after their spouse has cheated on them. And you, you probably say, oh yeah, I know, so-and-so got remarried, but you know their wife was cheating. Yeah, but was she formally disfellowshipped through the church? Did they go through the church discipline process? Because who are who we say she's not Christian? You know? <coughs> I mean, I'm not trying to think of an example of my own life. My cousin's husband left her for another woman, and they've both since remarried. He is obviously uh, apostate. He's proved it by his actions, by leaving his wife, cheating on her, and, and, and divorcing her, but I never heard of their church formally kicking the dude out. Have you? I don't know. But that's not what Jeff is asking about. Jeff's question is this, regarding an abandoned believer. What do we mean by abandoned believer? An abandoned believer is somebody who is a Christian and has an unbelieving spouse and that spouse has left them they're abandoned and their marriage is over and Jeff is asking at what point can the abandoned believer be remarried so let's go to the scripture that speaks to this is 1st Corinthians 7 so if you want to you can pause the show and read 1st Corinthians 7 so while you pause I'm going to take me a drink of Pepsi All right, now you've you've paused and unpaused and read First Corinthians seven. <clears throat> so Paul has a teaching here, and he starts and he says, "This is what the Lord says: Don't nobody leave your wife." That's that's my backwoods chat. That's a Chatsworth paraphrase for you. But he says in First Corinthians seven, he's talking about concerning marriage. He's like, "Don't nobody leave your wife." The Lord says it, and he goes. Here's what I say. Not the Lord, me. Because the first thing he says is, The Lord says, not I. Don't nobody leave your wife. And then he says, Here's what I say, not the Lord. Now Jeff didn't ask this, but I'm going to I point this out for you who may be wondering. <clears throat> what is this, Paul's opinion? No. The rest of Scripture bears out that it's not Paul's opinion. Paul there is probably... Almost certainly referring to the pre-existing teaching from the Lord, Jesus, on marriage, which we've already studied here in Matthew, by the way, on the Christian commute recently. This is, you know, when they ask him, hey, can, you, can we get a divorce for any reason? And he says, Moses permitted you to divorce because your hearts were hard, but it's not this way from the beginning. Whatever the Lord has joined together, let no man separate So that's what Jesus is talking about, Christian community there. That's the assumption, because they're referring to Moses. We'll call that covenant community. (coughs) Because you're presuming that your spouse is of the covenant community. Now Paul is talking about what we might call a novel situation. At least it was then, it's not now. Even though it still happens today. So the church has, has begun, expanded after Pentecost. So now we have the New Testament church on earth and message, the message of the gospel is going out from the Jews to the Gentiles. And Gentiles are getting saved out of paganism. So you got to think when a Jew accepted Christ as Savior they could have already had faith. Because it's there was lots of faithful Jews before Jesus was born. So looking forward to the Messiah, the Christ, who we talked about in the Bible chapter of you today, they said, oh, here he is. And they just kept on believing like they always had. And now we call him a Christian. Well, now the gospel is going out and Gentiles are being converted to Christ. They're becoming Christians. And the Corinthians is a very early book, so we're looking at the middle of the first century here. And now Christian communities are developing, and they're in, they're God's covenant people, and, <coughs> and they're probably mixed in with Jews too, who've brought them the gospel. Jews like Paul. So it's not hard to imagine there's two pagan people living in a city like Corinth. One of them gets saved. And now he's a Christian. His life is totally different, but his wife's still a pagan, or vice versa. Optimally, a Christian who is a part of the covenant community would not go out and marry a non Christian. But Paul elsewhere talks about do not be unequally yoked. And that could refer to any any type of relationship, but I think it especially refers to marriage because you're yoked together with your spouse and you're unequally yoked if your Lord is the Lord and your spouse's Lord is not the Lord, the God of this world, the devil, or anything else. So we really need to understand the context to this problem before I answer before I answer his question, at what point can the abandoned believer be remarried? What's going on is Christianity is new among the pagans, and because the gospel has come in, now we're seeing split households, like you know when when an Auburn fan marries an Alabama an, Auburn, an Alabama fan or something. This is not the Christian ideal. This is not what Christians should do. It, If if you have a Christian in your church and he goes out and he gets engaged to a non-Christian, you need to say, stop, you're sinning. You don't need to marry that woman. Period. Have nothing to do with her. Romantically. She's not a Christian. But even today, we can imagine uh, there's a a couple, they're not church-going people, they're not Christians, and one of them gets saved. And now you have this Situations that you have in 1 Corinthians 7 where you have a Christian spouse and a non-Christian spouse in the same household. That's how that quote-unquote should happen. That the people are already married and one of them gets saved. I believe these are the people or this is the situation Paul is addressing. and when he says not I but the Lord he's saying now I'm talking about a new situation I'm talking about a situation where someone comes to Christ and they're already in a marriage when they were both pagans he's saying Jesus did not address that when he said uh, Moses permitted you because the pagans didn't care what Moses said he's saying this is a different situation and I am addressing it he's addressing it as an apostle and it ain't his opinion it's the scripture And he says, uh, if the unbelieving spouse consents to live with the believing spouse, then fine. Just accept them as your husband and your household. Tolerate them. Who knows? Perhaps they'll be won to Christ by your witness. And he says, that marriage relationship sanctifies them. That is something very important to consider. Because that person is a non-Christian, is outside the covenant community. God's people are sanctified, set apart. They're a holy people. Not just them, but their families are sanctified. You're talking about family units here, You're like your children. Now, how did the Jews sanctify their children? Well, they circumcised them. So we're, we're pledging our child into the covenant community here. We get another drink of Pepsi. So, what Paul is saying is, even though this person is an unbeliever, they are, your family is sanctified through the believing spouse. So, this person is accepted, not as a believer, but accepted as a part of the covenant com- community because they are a family married to a believing spouse, and their children are sanctified too. Otherwise, they'd be unsanctified, unholy people <coughs> <coughs> who we wouldn't want to be what? Yoked with. Now we're talking about a situation where what if the unbelieving spouse leaves or abandons the believing spouse? This is not not acceptable between two believers. It's not. But the unbeliever, because they're an unbeliever, uh, they don't care what Jesus or Moses say, they're just going to leave for whatever reason. What's Paul say? Let him go. Don't fight it. You can accept the separation. And he says they are no longer they're no longer bound. And uh, the Greek word there it's a verb do loo, which means to enslave or bring under subjugation. And people with troubled marriages, or that's how I explain. you know, it's just, that's just what marriage is, Paul. That's not funny, but anyway. As Christians, we're bond servants of the Lord. We're bound to Him. We're a, what a loss, we say. So in marriage, you are bound, encumbered, if you will, to or by your spouse. There's a bond there for you to serve one another. You are a unit. You owe something to them, and they owe something to you. But Paul says, you are no longer bound to the unbelieving spouse if the unbelieving spouse leaves. If the unbelieving spouse stays and consents to live with you, that's your spouse. And you want them converted to Christ. But if they're not, you accept them, and you you have a duty to them as a spouse to love them as a spouse should. But if they leave, they're, not only, they're rejecting you. And not only that, they're rejecting their sanctification that they have through you as part of the covenant community. They're gone. That marriage is over. We're presuming a formal divorce here. But you're no longer bound to that person. In other words, the relationship is severed. Christians, whether they're married to one another or not, all Christians have a relationship with one another as part of the covenant community through Jesus Christ. And of course, the marriage relationship is—it's it's, you can't break it. A Christian marriage cannot be broken. All right. But <clears throat> now that this unbelieving person is left, they're rejecting the, the, the covenant community. They're rejecting their spouse. They're no longer bound. They owe no degree of servitude to that person. Gone. So let's say that. All right, that's a formal. I don't know what the divorce laws were like back then. I don't know if you had to go fill out a paper. I have no idea. But we're gonna call them divorced. The unbelieving spouse is left. When is the, the Christian free to remarry? The next day? There's no marriage. You're you're free to, now. Would it be wise to go go get married the next day? Probably not. But there's no there's no like waiting period, like you know when you go buy a gun they're like well there's a mandatory five day waiting period, or in Tennessee if you want to go get married you get married right away they'll say if you want to go through the waiting period you can, uh, if you want to get married right now you got to pay an extra hundred dollars I'm not I don't know what the amount is but I'm not joking, like you can get married in Tennessee like you can in Las Vegas like just like that, but in Tennessee they say hey maybe you should think about it, yeah you know, there's a waiting period. But if you don't want to, pay this fee and you get married. So you know, sleep on it. <laughs> so it's, it's probably not wise to get married the next day after your unbelieving spouse leaves you. But if you're a Christian, and let's go through the process, you were a lost person, you were a pagan, and you got married, because Christians are not the only people who get married. Then you get saved. Alright, I, I saw the light, and now you've come to Christ. Your unbelieving spouse, not what I signed up for. And she leaves. You are now free to remarry. You have been abandoned. You didn't run them off. You have been abandoned. By your unbelieving spouse. That's the situation from start to finish. You're no longer bound, you're not a slave to that person or that relationship. You're free to marry in Christ. Who are you free to marry? Uh, another Christian, not one who's divorced from another Christian. Now, I mean, there's a second part to the question. I think Jeff adds is, uh, "What if that unbelieving comes back? Unbelieving spouse come back comes back and wants to remarry?" Says, "All right, I miss you." Um, she changed her mind when she couldn't change me, alright? She comes back and, you know, she changed her tune. It's all Haggard and Jones. Aren't you guys sad that my lung capacity prevents me from belting out that Montgomery Gentry tune? She changed her mind when she couldn't change me. As I'm prone to do on the Christian commute. Sing country songs. Can't do it. Can't do it. But the unbelieving spouse comes back and wants to remarry. Is that okay? I'm going to say no. Some of you might have said i was going to say yes. And here's the reason I'm saying no. Here's the reason I'm saying no. It's not from the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament says if you divorce your wife, you can't remarry that same woman. And the reason for that is under the law, God did not want Old Testament Israel, passing women around like property. Like, all right, I'm married to this woman for a couple of years. All right, she's dissatisfied me. I want to move on to another woman. I'll divorce her, send her away. She can marry my neighbor. All right, now he's done with her for a couple of years. He's tired of her. Oh, send it back to me. I miss, uh, you know, I miss her. You know what? Cooking. It's cooking. Um, and in that way, women could be, you know, traded around like... Like mules or farm equipment. That, it's a, a, what you might call today a social safety net. Why you can't divorce a woman. Why you can't send her away and remarry her. Alright. By the way, that applies to the covenant community. Uh, So, I'm not saying no to the remarriage of that spouse. For that reason, I'm saying no, because Paul says don't be unequally yoked to an unbeliever. Your unbelieving spouse has left you. She's divorced you. Marriage is over. You're not bound. You're not under bondage to that person at all. So they come back, all right, I want to remarry. No, why? I'm not going to be unequally yoked. My Lord is still Christ. I can't be unequally yoked to you. Now, what if that person finds finds Jesus, gets saved, and then comes back and wants to get remarried? Well, okay, I say fine. That's okay. Now, let's say, and this is why people with a permanent view of marriage will say never get remarried. Let's say the unbelieving woman leaves. We'll call her a woman. She's gone. The believing husband... Finds a new believing wife and gets married. Now the unbelieving woman gets saved and wants to come back and reconcile and get married. Sorry, I'm already married. But I'm saved and now I want to be forgiven and restored and reconciled. I want to be married to you. Well, no, I'm already married to somebody else. By the way, (coughs) that wouldn't have been a problem in the first century because it wasn't nothing for people to have more than one wife. Do you know that back then people with more than one wife were getting saved and their wives were getting saved and they had more than one wife and they were all Christians? There is I'll say it this way I don't want to say there's no scriptural prohibition it's not a sin to have more than one wife scripturally speaking it's a bad idea I wouldn't do it it's against the law where I live Um, but you really can't make that argument from scripture I don't want to get on a rabbit trail certainly not recommending it and it's not something we deal with today but I'm just talking to those people with a permanent view of marriage that guy could absolutely take that woman as a second wife absolutely and it wouldn't have been abnormal back then culturally obviously that's not how our society works <laughs> um, but yeah just so to answer your question Jeff from Slow Driving Florida if you're not bound you're not bound so there's no there's no mandatory waiting period to like wait and see if they come back they're gone no longer under bondage to that person alright am I in white or rattle I don't know I think I'm in rattle so I'm almost back home and I got time to do the show topic Christian nationalism and post millennialism so like I said I'm, I'm, I'm a couple months late on this in the Christian Twitter sphere, there's been a lot of talk about Christian nationalism and the idea of wanting the country to be culturally Christian and striving for that. And that's on one extreme, and the other extreme, well, I don't know, one extreme would be wanting to, a militant theonomic takeover, I guess would be or theocratic takeover. I guess that would be in that one extreme. And I guess on the other extreme, it would be the the Benedict option of just going away from society and having nothing to do with it. Or maybe being like an Anabaptist or a Mennonite. Just like, well, we're just going to keep ourselves. We're not even going to vote. But what I'm starting to see and kind of hear propagated From post millennial circles, and I'll just use like Doug Wilson, Moscow, Idaho, that group, is that (coughs) Christian nationalism is something to be supported by the church and striven for. And as that becomes more popular, we as Christians need to sit back and think how are we going to handle this? Is this an emerging threat to my church or society? And remember, this is a Baptist podcast, so go read Article 18 of the Baptist Faith and Message. Traditionally, Baptists have been very wary of any kind of marrying or association between church and government. We want it separate. But what you're going to start seeing, and I think we're already seeing seeing it now, is that postmillennialism, maybe even theonomy, and Christian nationalism are going to become more and more popular, not because of any biblical prescription for it to. But, but as a reaction to the exceeding immorality of the society in which we live. In Western society. United States, Canada, Western Europe. It's kind of getting really nasty out there. It's Drag Queen Story Hour, for example. Could you imagine... If you're a kid like me growing up in the 80s going to Pizza Hut with your bucket rewards in that era of there being Drag Queen Story Hour at the library I mean somebody somebody get taken behind the woodshed. That's just that's just how it would happen. Like They'd be afraid to do that drag queen story hour not that you know in the 18 not not the 1880s I'm talking about the 1980s Sodomy's not illegal in the 1980s (coughs) there's gay people in the 1980s but it's not like we're going to have pride month and drag queen story hour it's just like we're going to this is just our life leave us alone But now you see these things that' are just, just like, wow, immorality is being celebrated. And I don't want to lay it all at the door of homosexuals. Listen, there's more divorced heterosexuals than there are homosexuals. And a lot of those divorced heterosexuals are claiming to be Christian. That's sexually immoral. That's, that's sexual immorality it just is. So you see rampant divorce. Rampant, rampant, rampant divorce. Homosexuality being celebrated. Not just celebrated, but like pushed on people. And now, it's like Michigan's proposing a law to fine you if you misgender someone. So some man says they're they're a woman and you're supposed to call her she or you get in trouble. So, (coughs) what you see is an incredible negative slide in public morality. And when you look around as a Christian, you're like, well, who thinks like me? These Roman Catholic people over here think like me. These Presbyterian PCA, these Doug Wilson type Presbyterians, not the PCUSA. And the PCA people think like me. These Church of God people over here think like me. These Pentecostals, they still have these same values of, you know, like Boy Scout values, God, country, family, self. Remember the Boy Scout values? Now the the Boy Scouts are pro-gay, but it used God, country, family, self, in parentheses, and no (coughs) gays. No gays left. The kind of things people believed in the 80s on the 4th of July, God, country, family, self. Changing. Now self is at the top. I remember when I was a Boy Scout and they gave you the Boy Scout book and said, here's our values. God, country, family, self. I'm like, I get it. Yeah. Now it's, I don't think the Boy Scouts have changed their book, but now the young people are like, oh, self. Self first. God's at the bottom. And when self is first, you get a Romans 1 situation like we have. So people see how wicked society is becoming. Cancel culture of the righteous. Misgendering laws. Public health care, paying for children to be mutilated into a a different sex. And if, if you speak out against it, we'll take your kid away or put you in jail. That's what they see coming. And they think, like, what are we going to do about it in the here and now? Let's organize and go towards Christian nationalism. In other words, I think the renewed focus, (coughs) or what you might might call a nascent focus, on formal Christian nationalism, which I think inherently entails post-millennialism and theonomy, is coming from this perceived threat. And if I may draw an analogy, think about, uh, think about integration, okay? So here in the South, when my, when, my kid, when my parents were kids, blacks and whites had separate facilities. They had separate schools, and they had separate parks. So if, where I'm from in Harrison, Harrison, Tennessee... If you were black and wanted to go swimming, you went to Booker T. Washington State Park at the public pool. If you were white and wanted to go swimming, you went to Harrison Bay public pool. Now, by the time I was a kid, anybody could go to Booker T. and anybody could go to Harrison Bay, but that's why they were two separate parks. I go eat, one of my favorite places to eat, four-way lunch in downtown Cartersville. There's a lunch counter, and then there's a counter in the back. And my my kid the other day asked me like, well, can you sit back there? I'm like, yeah, you can sit back there. That used to be the black section. Now people can sit wherever they want. It's an old restaurant. So after Brown versus Board of Education ended uh, educational segregation, what you had was a period known as integration. Right, wrong, or indifferent whether the people are ready for it or not so now you no longer have white schools and black schools you have geographic schools I mean the schools are always geographic but now the black kid who lives next door to the white school can go there and the white kid who lives next door to the black school can go there not only can go there but well they'll they're zoned for that and that's where they're going to go but rather than just sort of leave it at that powers that be decided we're gonna we're gonna do busing we're gonna force the integration because if you think about it even to this day you have white neighborhoods and black neighborhoods I think there's like four black families in my neighborhood and if you go to some black neighborhood in Gardenville, maybe there's four white families so when you add geographic schools you're still gonna have black schools and white schools because it's just where the people lived But they say, no, we're going to force the integration, so they started doing busing. We're going to take a bus, we're going to put the white kids, we're going to drive them to the black side of town to go to the black school. We're going to take a bus, we're going to get some black kids, not all of them, some of them, and take them to the white side of town. You're going to get bused, and we're going to integrate this way. We're going to force the issue. And the idea was, this is going to be fair because, well, the black schools aren't as well funded there's the white schools why do the black kids not go to, get, to go to the not school I think that's why they did it well when that sort of forced integration and busing started happening in the in uh, the late 60s and the 70s and 80s you had people upset at the government interference in their lives forcing them to do this that or the other especially in more urban areas like, uh, like, say, downtown Atlanta, for example, or the suburbs of Atlanta. And now it's, you, you have people who have a fear of a way of life. So you have young white people, young white men, who really have no interest in racial policies, activism, or the KKK, but now they get a little scared that the government's coming in and changing their society. And they don't like what they see. And they, what they do is they have fear of the unknown or fear of the future. Well, who comes in? The KKK starts recruiting off that. Now, before the forced integration, people was like, get out of here, KKK. You bunch of white sheet rednecks. I don't want anything to do with you. Ignorant sounding people like Byron D. Lebeckwith. I remember when I was a kid, Byron D. LeBeckwith Beckwith was on TV, uh, getting tried. He was from he was from Signal Mountain. It's just he lived there where I did. This, if, you've, if you're unfamiliar with who this person is, he assassinated a civil rights activist in the '60s and got away with it for 30 years, and they finally put him in jail. And he was just like the most wicked, evil man. And that's who I've always imagined a KKK person like. I don't I don't go to college or go to the front office and expect to see people with KKK sympathies. Just neither the ignorant rednecks, There's the vicious people. But now, well, who's going to help me? What? What? My my I, I'm, my society's changing. You know, I'm a 19 year old kid in, in suburban Atlanta in 1970. Well, now the KKK is going to use that fear to recruit and say, "Yeah, this is what happens unless you want to be what a white nationalist." Because the, the come there's a race war. It's coming. It's unavoidable and you're going to have to pick a side. There is no middle ground. You can be a black nationalist or a white nationalist. And people who didn't have any, eye, any inkling to being a nationalist, well, now they're going to start being white nationalists. And now they're in the KKK, where they wouldn't have been for. Okay? So what I fear for the visible church in America is you have young Christian men And they have an idea of what the family should be, a Christian idea of the man in charge and a wife who submits to her husband, and they raise their kids, and that's their family structure. None of this upside-down feminism stuff, and the the government doesn't come and interfere with their lives and tell them that they they can't misgender their confused kid, all right? They say they see their demographic becoming a pariah in society where all of a sudden CRT is popular and you got marks against you if you're a white male Christian. The WMA, do no wrong. I oh, See, I want to. Another song opportunity missed. White male American by Pearl Jam. Do no wrong. So clean cut. Dirties his hands. It comes right up. White male American. Won the lottery when he was born. But now that's changed. No white male systematic patriarch, patriarchal racist. They start to get a little nervous, a little jumpy. Well, What's the church supposed to be doing? Well, they look out and see, what are the churches that are growing? Garbage churches like Andy Stanley? Garbage churches like Stephen Furtick? They see social justice coming out of the mainline church. And they say secret-sensitive garbage coming out of Andy Stanley and, and Stephen Furtick. And you know what? Out of your typical Southern Baptist church, they say if they see effeminate, emotion-driven, garbage worship. I, I'm pausing because I want you to let that sink in. You might not think that you have that problem. Because you don't go to Handy Stanley's church. You don't go to Stephen Furtick's church. You don't go to a mainline church. But the worship at your church is Hillsong, Bethel, Elevation, Passion, emotion-driven, effeminate garbage worship. Catered towards women. Catered towards women because it's women bringing the kids into church. And it's all about getting kids and whoever's bringing them. And they say, there's just no place to be a man, to be that dad who took me to Pizza Hut and gave me a quarter for the arcade on July 5th after we shot fireworks on July 4th, and went to church on July 3rd. Society's changing, and it hates me, but there's people out there, and they might be a little different than me dominationally. Who they support this, you know what my vision and we're going we're gonna to be Christian nationalists together. whether you want to call it seven mountains or not? That's, that's a whole different type of dominionism, but you can get mixed in with it. <coughs> and they're going to go out and they're going to think it's the church's mission to elect the mayor and the senator and the congressman, and to create conservative enclaves, Christian nationalist enclaves, like Moscow. And there is going to be no shortage of the Christian Nationalist KKK of people from Moscow. I'm not saying Doug Wilson's racist. I'm not saying that. You can believe it if you want to. Wouldn't be a stretch for you to believe it, given what some of the things he's written, but that's not my point. They're going to be attracted to that. And there will be no shortage of post-millennial theonomists making money on the conference circuit. All right, this is our, you know, <coughs> this is our conference on the Bible and politics and how to create a Christian state. And they're going to publish and they're going to sell tickets. And guess what? There's not going to be a Christian nationalist takeover of the United States. All right. It is like you're going to start a political party and not win. But the people at the, at the high point of the movement, the people who are going to be blogging and writing the books from Canon Press, well, I mean, they're going to be persecuted all the way to the bank. But what you're going to see is young men in your churches starting to bring in theonomy, starting to bring in post-millennial theology and starting to skew the mission of the church where it should be. And you know what they're going to start doing? They're going to start insisting on unholy, unequal partnerships. Well, let's get together with the Catholics and do this. And let's get together with the Pentecostals and do this because we all believe the same thing about the family and the state. You guys know, who listen to this podcast, just as an example, what I think of Roman Catholicism. You guys know what I think of Pentecostalism. I I don't mince words or pull punches when I talk about unbiblical movements. The Roman Catholic Gospel is works based and synergistic and condemned as anathema under Galatians 1.8 but, but what does Roman Catholic family life, life look like in practice well it looks like people that I want to be neighbors with and I'm talking about believing Roman Catholicism I'm not nominal I'm not like people who believe it what do they do they take their children to church to be cate- catechized this is who God is this is what Jesus did they don't get divorced they have male and female roles in the family children are God's reward in that marriage sanctioned by God under the grace of God they are church going people they believe what I believe about the family and sexuality, more or less. Now, officially, Roman Catholics believe that <laughs> all sex should be procreative. And if it's not procreative, you shouldn't be having sex. I'm, I'm, my wife can't have any more kids. I'm not going to stop having sex. I don't know what they're... Sorry, Roman Catholics. And I, By the way, I think they're all having sex, whether they can have kids or not. Anyway. But they believe like I do their house their household will look like my household Pentecostals rolling around hooting and hollering making a mockery of the Holy Spirit listen to idiots like Jensen Franklin and Kenneth Copeland well their family life looks like mine too and on and on down the road and what you're going to see is people wanting to create a cultural Christianity because would you rather live in cultural Christianity or Justin Trudeau's Canada that's what they'll say and there will be some mission Besides spreading the gospel and baptizing people out there to create cultural Christianity, I, I don't want that. I don't. I, I don't want to be yoked up with all these other people because they look like me or they believe something sociologically like me. I don't think that's the mission. <clears throat> and it's easy to get disaffected if you're an 18 to 35 Christian male right now. and I'll raise my hand. I'm disaffected. When I go to church and they sing Hillsong, I'm disaffected. It's an offense to me. And I say, these people are not like me. Something's wrong. Something, something needs to be fixed. They don't believe like I believe. I'm disaffected in that way. But, but I, I'm, I'm formed. You know, the, the pot is baked. The glaze has been put on. I, I, I'm Mike Gundy. I'm a man. I'm 40. I'm 41 years old. This is me. I didn't grow up disaffected in Christianity. But young men who have the values I have are going to grow up and feel disaffected because of how our, our society has changed. Because it's it's not... A, big hand slapped a white male American on the butt and said, you run the lottery. Like it used to be. Okay? And the church is now, as it was when I was little, as it was before, full of <coughs> unregenerate people of the visible church that aren't truly regenerate of the invisible church. False converts. And a true convert is just going to be, well, I'm going led by the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to join the KKK when they come recruit me. I'm not going to join the, the Doug Wilson's Roman Catholic Defense League when it comes here. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to respond in anger and militance and racism ethnocentrism. I'm not going to respond that way. But you're going to have people who will... And they're going to be at your church. And you better be ready. And listen, some skinny jeans-wearing music minister ain't going to stop it. He's there dealing with the women. Okay? We're going to have to lead these young men down the biblical path... Not one of responding in fear with the wrong associations and the wrong goals. I'm telling you. I'm warning you. Watch out for Christian nationalism and post-millennialism. It's ripe for those gullible, not, I don't want to say gullible, but Those people are right from the picket. Those young Christian men. They can be susceptible to that wrong path. So cut it off at the pass at your church when the Christian nationalists come calling. Okay? And by the way, I, I did not define the term Christian nationalism in this podcast, all right? I didn't mince hair. You want to hear somebody mince words, mince terms about it? Go listen to John Harris. Okay, I'm a Christian. As an American, I'm a nationalist because uh, I I want America to fare better than countries that are not America or the United States. I'm white, so somebody could say Seth is white. He is a nationalist. He's a Christian. He's a white Christian nationalist. I'm not a white nationalist, and I'm not a Christian nationalist. I'm white. It has nothing to do with Christianity. I'm a nationalist, because I live... I'm, you know, I want Alabama to beat Auburn, and I want the U.S. to do better than Mexico. Right? Um, and I'm a Christian, which is the most important thing. Christian nationalism is going to sound good. Post-millennialism is going to sound good. But ultimately, it's gonna it's gonna do nothing nationally, and go nowhere nationally. But it'll wreck people at local churches. All right, that's all I got to say about that for now. How how long's this podcast? How long did I go? An hour and ten minutes. Hey, a double sized podcast today. It's the least I could do. I, you know, I'm, I'm gonna say this: it's not my you know. Nobody's blaming me for getting sick. But Guys, I'm sorry. I know I know that a lot of you like to have your podcast in your schedule. I am I'm so thankful for you people who make me a part of your routine. It's not a 5-day podcast anymore. It's just a 3-day th- podcast. But y- you you guys have made me a part of your rotation. You got 30 minutes 3 times. And your week to listen to The Christian Commute. There's a lot of other podcasts you could listen to. And you guys listen to me, and you send questions in to me, and I really appreciate it. And I'm just sorry I was gone. Uh, but <coughs> I made it today. And uh, I'm glad to be back. And I hope you guys <coughs> can take this podcast and apply it in your lives and give good Christian counsel to others. And I hope somebody sends me a question to SethDunn88 at gmail.com. And I hope everybody remembers that Christianity is not about getting saved. Thanks for listening it's to The It's about Christian being community. saved. God bless. Please send your questions about Christian apologetics and theology to SethDunn88 at gmail.com. If you are not a Christian, please remember that you can be reconciled to God through the shed blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Repent of your sins now and accept Jesus as Lord. God bless.